This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Nice to have you here today. I am so pleased that Bialabati just arrived yesterday from Brazil and it's here with us today. Welcome, Bia. Welcome back. Yeah, was not aware it was winter here. <laughs> Before we get into the conversation around the globalization of ayahuasca, you have 20 plus books written on the subject, many academic articles, publications, and have been in the field, both as a researcher, as an activist, as an anthropologist, doing field work and academic work for the preservation, for the education, and for the knowledge of this now very evolving field. As we know, we're living the the psychedelics renaissance here in San Francisco. Um, I was thinking about your uh, most recent engagement with the Shakruna Institute that is also in your bio. So I was wondering if you would like to speak a little bit about that and how did that um, expansion come about and what is the Shakruna Institute about? Thank you, Giselle. Um, just want to... Thank, you know, uh, start by thanking uh, CIIS and the public programs for having me here and thank my friend and colleague Giselle for being gentle to do this interview. Uh, and thank you all for, for coming. So uh, I, I have been loving uh, California kind of idyllic idealization of California for about nine years and it was my dream to live here. Uh, but I was afraid because, you know, of costs of living and things like that. And I have been going back and forth for like seven years um, because I used to live in Mexico. And so I always tried to come here. And then in the last two years, more steady one year, I finally migrated, made it to America. <laughs> and I want to accomplish the American dream as well and, you know, settle here and make a living here. And I have been idealizing uh, to so basically, I'm an academic that have been doing research and writing, and I've worked eight years on different universities. In I lived I lived in Germany uh, for two and a half years, and then Mexico for five years, and um, now in the last one two years here, and I decided to try to to make a living by following this dream, not only of California. Uh, the California dream, as as we know, uh, but um, to create an institute, a nonprofit uh, that is like the expression of my soul, my vision, my mission, and I have uh, been fortunate to have gathered a group of maybe around thirty volunteers, and we've been creating this institute called the Trucruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines. 
So uh, we are basically a collective. We don't have a legal status yet. Uh, MAPS is our fiscal sponsor. Uh, but we're acting already like an organization. Uh, and and the main mission of Chakruna is to provide public education about psychedelic plant medicines and to try to create some cultural legitimacy around the use of psychedelic plant medicines. And the second mission of Chakruna is to try to create a bridge between the universe of traditional ceremonial use of plant medicines, so the whole universe of shamanism, religion, ritual, uh, plant medicines, and the universe of psychedelic-assisted therapy or psychedelic, assist or psychedelic science. So trying to create this bridge, this dialogue, this communication. And my main point is that, you know, there's a lot of talk about the drug war and the problems of prohibition and all the challenges regarding health and uh, economic disparities and uh, limitations uh, geopolitical attacks of other countries, over-incarceration, uh, problems of forced immigration, poverty, violence associated to uh, traffic and all that. But what there is not so much is, is a cultural discussion about the legitimacy of the use of drugs, so-called drugs or plant medicines. Normally, we, we criticize the bad effects of prohibition, but we don't talk proactively so much about how these substances are part of culture, identity, lives, traditions, rituals, and uh, ways of being, ways of socialization, of learning, of knowledge, of identity, of territory, of uh, expressing uh, arts, and of learning about um, how to transmit knowledge and, and stuff. So the idea is that we talk about the role of these plants in culture, in society. So not to talk only about the health thing or criminalization or uh, marginalization, but talk more proactively about the role of plants um, in society, in different traditions and in different cultures. So that's more or less what this institute is about. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it's it's a wonderful initiative that you've had and uh, a visionary thing. And a lot of people sometimes don't read academic books because of the language, because of the access to the books and in their editions or in libraries. And this is very accessible where people can get information in a short amount and it's through the internet. And so it's a, I think it's a fantastic contribution. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so we have different lines of work in Chikruna. One, one line is academic research, and then we have different projects. We have the Council for the Protection of Sacred Plants, uh, the Ayahuasca Community Committee, and the Psychedelic uh, Therapy Music Forum. There's also a project related to peyote called the, the Peyote Files. And then there is one branch of Chikruna, that is the publication of articles. And we have five different sessions. So one session is integration, spirituality, science, policy, and culture. And the articles are about 1,800 words because we are in this you know, time span that nobody seems to be able to concentrate too much. And uh, actually, we just got the Google Analytics that shows that people read about 700. So we are already over. <laughs> Word, but basically the idea is, I like to make this little joke that I 
I took 20 years to publish 20 books, and I came to the conclusion that nobody reads. So, <laughs> so let's make a, a short site with a sexy opening image and a catchy title. And hey, you go to a party and people quote your article. And uh, the idea is to make a kind of balance between not so academic, hermetic, expensive, nobody knows, nobody understands, nobody reads, but also not media that can be either super like sensationalistic, reductionistic, or on the other side, a lot of glorification, messianic salvation. This is the solution for all the problems. Of course, there is good media. It's not just, you know, these extremes. But even good media, they have challenges in being really good because it's like journalists have to research different topics all the time. So we're getting the academics to talk from the inside, but try to make the academics write things that people care and understand. So it's a challenge for the academics as well to try to write in another language. And we've been making this multiple articles and it's it's going really well. It's very warming because like now I got these statistics. In the last eight, eight months, we had 4.2 million visits in our site. So, you know, I feel there is a hunger for this kind of knowledge in the U.S. And this is where I feel that this mission is important because people want to learn. People care and people are tired of just like biomedical, reductionistic, uh, you know, stereotyped knowledge. People want also diverse voices, and we also want to bring diverse voices, voices from South America, voices from women, voices from indigenous native people, voices from people of color, so bring access, diverse, uh, diversity, inclusion, and, and, and cultural um, discussions, and also a kind of cultural reflection or meta-critique um, on the field of psychedelic science, because as psychedelics go mainstream and clinical trials advance with MDMA and psilocybin uh, becoming closer and closer to regulation and uh, closer and closer to FDA approval, and as medicalization advances, we also need to create a culture around these things, a kind of reflection on what is the best way to use it and who has access and how are we going to do this expansion. So our Articles want to offer a cultural critique about the field of psychedelic science, so that's also related to cultural and political perspectives on the field of psychedelic science, where we anthropologists and social scientists can offer a contribution, because this debate should not be monopolized by medical doctors and psychiatrists and clinical psychologists, although I love you all and <laughs> <laughs> respect all multiple forms of knowledge, but unfortunately... Social sciences gets, you know, it's the cherry on top of the cake. Like our knowledge is cute and nice, but nobody really takes it seriously. So we want to change that. Very good. <laughs> I, I'm all for it. And along the, the expansion, the, we're going to talk about access in a minute. But if we stay with the topic of today that a lot of people came in to talk, to hear about the globalization of ayahuasca. So... There are trials, the FDA is working towards legalization of MDMA, of uh, mushrooms in, in treatment of trauma and psychotherapy, and it's being used in multidisciplinary teams, and you have a lot of research going on. What's the difference with ayahuasca? Would you start there? What's the difference between the clinical trials and 
the traditional use of ayahuasca or well if we're thinking about the expansion right the uh, people who didn't have access to this before and so what we are noticing now is there is a medical model that is bringing access to to people who need treatment who are healing from trauma and they are using substances that weren't before being considered as a healing modality but ayahuasca is a little bit different because it's a natural plant becomes it comes from the amazon it has uh, an indigenous uh, component to it and when we're talking about the expansion of ayahuasca or the globalization of ayahuasca i guess the idea is of the medicine coming out of the forest um, or people going to the forest would you like to expand on that um you know, there's multiple things to be said. I think what comes to mind, um, I was invited by MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, where I hold this position called Public Education and Cultural Specialist to curate a plant medicine track within uh, the inside the Psychedelic Science 2017. So that was the largest... Um, conference on psychedelics in the planet so far. It had like nearly 3,000 attendees. And the plant medicine track was two, uh, almost two tracks inside the whole conference. So we had clinical track, clinical trials or more biomedical, interdisciplinary, which was kind of everything else that didn't fit <laughs> in the other two, and the plant medicine track. So that was an example uh, of, of the interests in, in in plant medicines, because in the context of this like medical model and dis scientific discussion, actually the public a big draw to the conference was people that people's interest in plant medicines and ayahuasca is the greatest one that people are in, interested. So this whole boom on psychedelic science and all this renaissance and this fuss around it. In fact, ayahuasca is probably the biggest, uh, you know, popular thing. I mean, maybe not numerically, if you consider that peyote is used by the uh, Native American church and they have chapters throughout the states, and we don't have a lot of data on, on peyote update church use, but maybe some people have said, you know, in 1994, people evaluated in 250,000, and now recent research mentioned maybe six, 600,000 or 700,000 members. And you also uh, uh, have you know, other uses that are not in the Native American church. So it's hard to compare. Maybe there is more peyote use than ayahuasca use, but definitely beyond indigenous use, ayahuasca is the one that is most popular and that has spread more throughout the globe. And particularly in the U.S., I think it's a fever. Um, every city that you go everywhere, I don't know, I guess I'm a little bit biased but because I always talk about ayahuasca and people come to me and say, hi, I drink ayahuasca. So I, my worldview is a little bit distorted, uh, but I just, you know, everywhere I go, there is ayahuasca all the time. Even in Trader Joe's, like, <laughs> people ask you about ayahuasca, and it's on TV, and it's all over, and it's here to stay. The genie is out of the bottle. You like it, you don't like it, you're critical, you're not critical. 
doesn't matter. They're brewing thousands and thousands of liters of ayahuasca right now in the Amazon forest to feed all these hungry mouths everywhere. They're brewing it in Hawaii. They're making it in Australia. People are traveling everywhere. You know, like the vine. The vine is like kind of like a plague in a way because the Pachamama lovers, they love the vine. But if you think more coldly, like biologically, it's a sort of invasive species that, you know, goes and takes over like a vine that, like in Hawaii, they, you know, they report, they plant it and it takes over. Like they're worried environmentally that's an exogenous species. So the way the vine grows is a little bit represents, you know, the way the, the, the plant is expanding itself, it's just spread uh, all over. And I have 21 years studying ayahuasca, and I continue to be, I'm going to use a new word that I learned, baffled, um, <laughs> puzzled, impressed, intrigued. Uh, it's hard to even have an opinion about what we think about the globalization of ayahuasca nowadays because it's so fast and it's evolving so much. It's hard to follow, but... As you know, <laughs> I can go on. So Yes. So along those lines, shall we name some of the dilemmas of the globalization? Yes. So that we can tackle a few of them. There's the ecological piece. There's uh, the facilitation of, of the works by um, people connected to the Amazon, not connected to the Amazon, uh, people going to the forest, the medicine coming here, um, the fact that it's not legal here. There's many angles. So which one do you prefer to start with? Um, I think definitely, you know, the, if you if you say, oh, oh, let's talk about the globalization of ayahuasca. Yeah, how, how do we tackle, how do we approach this topic? As you say, there's multiple um, ways I think for sure thinking the challenges and the controversies is a good way to go, like a, a, a track of thought. You mentioned a few, and that's kind of what people are interested in normally. These are exact the challenges. So the ecological one is one that has caught a lot of attention. People are worried on whether you know, this is sustainable or not, and what are we doing for sustainability, sustainability. Uh, and um, I, I just want to remark one little curiosity and detail beforehand is that when we talk about ayahuasca and all this fuss, as I said, this boom, this ayahuasca pride, uh, actually, what are we talking about? Because if you consider the whole boom and the, the boom of the science around it too, one of the fields that is less developed is the field of botanical studies on ayahuasca. So there has been some col uh, collection of ayahuasca in herbariums like last century and, you know, in the beginning uh, of this century. Uh, but there has been hardly any identification of the, the plant species itself. So we just published a paper in Chikruna about this. When we're talking about ayahuasca, what are we talking about? Because there, people don't know exactly. There's different types of vines and there's different types of chacruna as well. And there, there has been no comparison, no, uh, hardly any, any, any identification or placement in herbariums. And what is more interesting, no comparison between different 
uh, ethno denominations, like how different indigenous groups classify ayahuasca or Santo Daime or the UDV or Barquinha, each one has a way to call it. And there has been not a lot of cross-examination on comparison, neither this in relation to scientific knowledge. Excuse me. Yeah, and then there's the way that each of these groups, whether through a more indigenous shamanism or through a religious organization, just like the religious in Brazil, the Santo Daime, the Barquinha, the UDV, uh, it's also prepared differently. And the the shamans or the leaders in these uh, spiritual, different spiritual traditions would go about it in a different way. So there's something that gets passed down through generations and through the knowledge of the forest and the connection with the plant that is not something that it's like a recipe that you get from a book. So I guess along with what you're saying, there's that element as well. Yeah, I was I was heading more towards like uh, the ecological dimension. Uh, so just going back that way, uh, for sure, uh, connected to what you're saying, I was saying that when we're talking about ecological challenge, the first thing we have to to remind before we start discussing the ecological challenges is what are we exactly talking about? What is ayahuasca and how do we identify ayahuasca and what is the current state of art in terms of the research on ayahuasca? So that's one piece and and I was mentioning the lack of botanical knowledge. You make conferences with 100 speakers. There is hardly one talking about botanical aspects of ayahuasca. So it's a good tip for people that are looking for research topics. Uh, the ecological dimension, it's also not studied. And people actually don't know. And this is also related to the fact that we don't have a global knowledge of how much people are drinking ayahuasca in the world. So it's like it would be proportional, like how much is being taken, how much is is being replanted, how many we don't we, we we have very little information about this global numbers it's underground and it's not regulated by any central um like agency saying you know <laughs> register here if you drink ayahuasca so i i get like one email per week excuse me dr labate how many people drink ayahuasca in the world and i feel like you know <laughs> i'm a jukebox like uh what am I going to say? Nobody knows that. Nobody knows exactly how many people drink ayahuasca in the world. And then we don't have a lot of information about ecological dimension either. So there has been a few reports. Chris Kilham published one, but they are all very small. And what exists is the practice of the Brazilian ayahuasca religions to plant ayahuasca. So they have a very nice model. The Brazilian law imposed that to harvest ayahuasca, you have to have a plan to plant ayahuasca. So you have to be sustainable. Of course, that's great in paper and in theory, but it's quite bureaucratic and complicated and full of dilemmas that don't work very well, like a lot of things in Brazil, as you well know. Uh, but the idea behind it is very good, which is you have to collect ayahuasca, you have to, to plant and to have some kind of sustainable management plan to be able to harvest it. The church that has accomplished this better is the Union do Vegetal, the UDV. So the UDV is a really, really fabulous example because every church of the UDV that wants to be a church, they have to have a garden and they have to plant it. 
and then they brew it together. Mom, dad, kids, dog, <laughs> parrot, everybody comes, you know, cooks together, spends long journey making the ayahuasca so they're self-sustainable. They go visit one church, visits the other, lends materials. They have a whole knowledge. What is the best kind of wood? What is the best kind of fire? What is the best kind of pot? How do you uh, keep the it? How Does it ferment? Doesn't it ferment? Should we put it in the fridge or not? So it's a great... It's a great example of a sustainable way to do things. This is one point I wanted to make. The other point I want to make is that, you know, we, we can talk a lot about how ayahuasca use is unsustainable, but the hippies or the lovers or the Pachamama, you know, <laughs> ayahuasca followers, they can go and harvest ayahuasca and cause some damage, yes. But what is causing much more damage is the uh, development models of the Amazon and uh, you know, big uh, lumber industry, agro-industrial uh, uh, investments, exploitation of the Amazon. So by the minute, the Amazon gets devastated. As we talk, it's being devastated. And this has a much larger impact on ayahuasca populations than ayahuasca-consumer uh, relationships. So to talk about sustainability is a much larger project and enterprise, which would be to question our models of development. And this, of course, it's a much more complicated um, issue, has a lot of parallels with peyote as well. So as that, I have to take a deep breath, because especially with the with the government that Brazil has right now and the plans that they have in terms of, of the Amazon. So that's a whole other conversation that enters um, uh, planning and politics and development of the country as a whole and the preservation of nature uh, in face of capitalism. If we stay with the globalization of ayahuasca and what dilemmas do you see in terms of people seeking the medicine and let's say going down, traveling to the Amazon, spending time there and experiences that people have? Anything that you want to highlight about that? Yeah, okay, that's also pretty big. <clears throat> so staying in this line of thought about um, dilemmas of globalization, ecological one. The other one, of course, I think it's like a health one mm -hmm. and has to do with, you know, training and preparation and and how well-prepared are people to drink ayahuasca and how well-prepared are shamans and facilitators to give ayahuasca and it's also a big challenge like the problem is always the same is the is the the glass half full or is the glass half empty i am basically an optimistic person and i like to defend the expansion of ayahuasca and i like to think that you know it's not a chaos and it's not a big mess I, I prefer, although there is a bit of chaos and there is a bit of mess, uh, but I prefer to look on the positive aspects of this expansion. I think that considering the huge economic disparities and cultural differences, somehow the ayahuasca culture has managed to infiltrate, to expand, uh, to go beyond the Amazon in ways that are pretty organized and self 
controlled. So as anthropologists, we advocate uh, that these traditions, they have what we call social and cultural informal means of control. And what is that? That's the way that people learn ways to use ayahuasca that are right. And why when you go to a, a ceremony of ayahuasca and the shaman goes to the restroom, you don't go there and steal a little bit of ayahuasca and drink a big glass. Maybe you can <laughs> do that once. Nobody can, you know, guarantee they never did something wrong. But normally, you wouldn't do that, or you're not going to ask the shaman, can I get some and take home and watch TV? <laughs> Why? Because you learn. That's not right. How do you learn? Somebody taught you. Who taught you? The people that gave it to you. Where did they learn? With the people that gave it to them. So, you know, if you look cross-culturally, the whole majority of circles and environments have rules. Hey, it's illegal. It's a hallucinogenic drug. It's considered stigmatized. It's a taboo. You know, you don't get taught in school, but there's a whole way of doing things that exists and prevail and travel to Japan, to California, to, you know, South Africa, where people are following basic rules, which is the idea of screening, the idea of preparation, the idea of certain diets, the idea that the ritual has a beginning, middle, and end, that the post-ritual matters and that you sort of have to take care of your interactions and, and what you do. And this is all part of this kind of pan-ayahuasca global culture that has developed. And there's a huge amount of knowledge available on experiences, on better ways to make the best out of it, uh, on what's good, what's not good. There's disputes. And there's always this, somehow this thread with the idea that you have to learn from a teacher and there's a hierarchy and there's people that know more and control the doses and give it to you. And even in the more alternative, wild contexts, you normally find some kind of organization. So I like to look at this proactive, positive means of organization of this dynamic culture. But of course, if you want to pick problems and challenges there's a bunch of them there's a million problems there's a lot of problems there have been incidents but then that's where you know the role of the group matters because criticizing other groups or even this bad gossipy thing that exists in ayahuasca cultures serve a kind of purpose and function function which is social control so I, I think that considering that it's underground, uh, it's still pretty well organized. Mm -hmm. And so along those lines, there's two questions that I would like to ask you. One is around the generation or the ways of handling and facilitating being passed down and sometimes through uh, non-indigenous people or people who are not traditionally a part of certain countries where the ayahuasca is from. And so we're talking about um, the ayahuasca itself traveling and coming to different places in the world, as well as people from the Amazon 
leaving the Amazon and coming into the world. You have that exchange, people who are from here going there. And then also people who are not traditionally from those countries or those traditions becoming facilitators and leading works. Are, is there anything that we want to talk about? Is there any concerns around cultural appropriation or any dilemmas around how the medicine is being spread and used? Yeah, again, I'm going to focus on the positive. Maybe um, some people can challenge me in the questions and answers. Um, I think I am, as I said, basically, I am those kinds of anthropologists with a not very orthodox perspective. So a lot of colleagues of mine are much more critical and much more strict, especially anthropologists that are what we call in Brazil ethnologists, that is the branch that studies indigenous people. I am more of an urban anthropologist, and I study the interface between traditional use and the expansion. So I am more familiar and tolerant with the new age uh, appropriation or uh, development than the people that are more used, more traditionally uh, study traditional uses and indigenous people sometimes are much less open and, you know, tolerant to what's happening right now. So there's a spectrum of interpretations in our discipline. And I am of those that it, there are more accepting of this globalization. My, my perspective is more pragmatic. My perspective is not so moral, like, is this right or wrong? Should we be, eat, you know, having a nice frappuccino in a, in, a, in a fancy building discussing whether this is cultural appropriation or not? But it's happening. <laughs> and it's there. And it's here to stay. You know, wake up. It's gonna, it doesn't matter what you think. What are you doing to make things better? So I am, as I say, a kind of pragmatic and harm reduction perspective. I think we have to look ways to better integrate this. And as I said, one of the ways to integrate this is to create a cultural container and a cultural legitimacy and start by claiming and stating, hey, this is part of life. This is important to me. This is part of my identity. This is part of who I am. This is part of what I want to believe in. I have my human rights. I have my religious rights. And I, you know, I I care for this. Uh, so... I, I got lost. Very good. It? So I have the thread. <laughs> so we're going towards harm reduction, legitimacy, making ah, it cultural safe. Cultural appropriation. Well, the cultural appropriation, well, the other piece that, you know, it, everything is connected. So I'm going to touch on some of it. And then the people later will talk about whatever else they want to hear more. But the the guidelines. And so the guidelines to engage in work. Uh, right? no, but OK, I, I remember what it, your previous question. Mm -hmm. I, I'll finish that because I was going somewhere. Yes. I, so the idea, whether this is legitimate or not, and whether this is cultural appropriation or not, right? That was a little bit what you were asking. Yes. So we have to look that historically, the evolution, the history of ayahuasca has not been a linear evolution, let's say. The remote indigenous person passed it down to the mestizo, that passed it down to the Christian, that passed it down to the big cities of Peru or Brazil, that passed it down to the natives of California, that passed it down to, to us here today. It has not been historically like this. The use of ayahuasca has been historically a hybrid because 
there has been the use in, in the forest and then some mestizo uses that are product of colonization that are hybrids with Christianity that have sort of emerged in little, little riverine towns in the Amazon and then gone back again inside the forest. So sometimes you look, you know, an indigenous practicing shaman uh, and you say, oh, look, that's the evidence that's indigenous. But in fact, this guy maybe learned in the 30s or in the 60s with some mestizo populations. And the history of ayahuasca has always been a history of pan-ethnic alliances and pan-ethnic exchanges and a lot of mix. So there has been a lot of back and forth between the city and the forest in the traditional use of ayahuasca. So the traditional use of ayahuasca has never been pure or unique to one single group. And there's also been different modalities. There's, you know, I published in all those books, we have a table with the books there. I can recommend several articles showing, for example, in Machiganga, there's not a word for chacruna because they say it in Spanish because traditionally they don't have this word. Uh, they have groups that have learned with missionaries. You have indigenous people in Brazil that learned the use of ayahuasca, the Guarani people in the south of Brazil, very far from the Amazon. They they learn it with the Red Path, the New Age kind of pan tipi global uh, rituals that brought vision quests and ayahuasca to the Guarani people that then created a word for ayahuasca in Guarani and claimed that the ancestors have been using it since ever. And there's like ethnic revivals and people, for example, the Kuntanawa, that was a group that was nearly disappeared, uh, had one survivor, and they kind of went through this process of drinking ayahuasca and sort of rescuing or recreating their own culture and uh, learned with Pano groups that were neighboring groups how to use ayahuasca, and they do a kind of ritual that is in this context of this mix. Some indigenous Kashinawa people were forgetting about their ayahuasca traditions and learned through the Santo Daimi how to connect to their own traditions. So this mix is authentic. This mix is in the, the history of ayahuasca. There is not a pure history of one use that then perverted to our appropriation. It has always been a flux. It has always been a hybrid. It has always been a back and forth. It has always been indigenous, but it's also mestizo. It's also urban. And in Brazil, as you know, and I know you know, <laughs> uh, we have Santo Daime and UDV and all these uses that are urban and that have deep roots in the Amazon. And there are this big cultural combination of Afro-Brazilian things, indigenous things, Christian things, European esotericism in this, you know, formula of the Brazilian ayahuasca churches. So for I am not sympathetic to this idea of cultural appropriation. I don't think it helps a lot, this concept. Uh, I do think that we have to talk about ethics and we have to talk about economic disparities. And I do think that these interchanges that don't happen in an equal level, mm -hmm. and it's not like equal pay players making an interchange. There is power, there is domination, there is hierarchy, there is big 
social differences and especially in this tourism modality, it's not everybody alike. There's a lot of problems and inequalities and we have to address those issues. We have also to address irresponsible use and fake shamans and, uh, you know, facilitators wannabe that, you know, took a weekend course and think that they, they, they are shamans and all these kinds of things. So I think that, you know, the mem uh, cultural appropriation, when people talk about cultural appropriation, they're talking about something that doesn't feel good, that feels there's something wrong. I think they are right in the feeling that there is something wrong. But I don't think that the wrong is the cultural appropriation per se, because I don't think nobody owns that. But it's how is this exchange and relationship happening? And that matters. Yes. And so along with that, the whole piece around diet and people preparing to go. And so in the pan-indigenous, many different traditions, forest, urban, many different develops, different ways of holding the ritual of that experience being understood and processed. Anything you want to say about how people prepare as a, in a more Western way, the intention, the use for it with um, in combination with other practices, as you have many retreat centers now that are combining yoga and some other psychological methods for people to acquire the healing. And then this idea of the dieta that is a, an indigenous recommendation or preparation. How do you see that in this mix? Yeah, that's a... I, th I think, you know, diets and integration are the most popular things in California. Everybody, <laughs> somebody that doesn't like diets or doesn't like integration, raise their hands because... Uh, and somebody that doesn't use the word community. Um, <coughs> so... It's a popular topic. I, I wrote a, a paper recently um, about, we're kind of criticizing a little bit this idea of the diet. We, we, we say that the Westerners have kind of like a fetishization of the diet uh, because the diets in indigenous contexts, they have to do with a whole lot of things. They have to do with a bunch of rules and a whole cosmology that we are not importing. So the diets have to do... Basically, the, 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 the main principle is that there is like a reciprocity economy between the man, man and spirits, a give and take. And this relationship with the invisible world, with the ancestral world, with the world of the spirits, with the world of the dead, with the world of the, the beyond... Is a, is a relationship of tension, and it can be also predatory. It's a constant negotiation, and it's not all harmonic and lovey-dovey and all good. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tense relationship that involves this reciprocity and this give and take. And so there's rules on how to do things. For example, hunting. You know, the shaman will meet uh, the the shaman of the pigs and negotiate how many boars can be hunt and how many cannot be hunt. And then there's ways to debone mm -hmm. uh, the, the game, the proper ways to hunt, proper ways to debone. And then there are certain ways that you have to behave towards hunting. 
And so the diets, they have to be understood within, a lot of them have, have to do with hunting uh, rules and taboos, let's say. <clears throat> and they have to be understood within this larger economy that has to do with also ideas such as fertility or uh, fertility of the woman, but also fertility of the land uh, and smells and relationship to the spirits. Why can't you uh, take ayahuasca when you have your period? Because the spirits smell that blood and they don't like that smell. And that has to do with a whole lots of other things, how to pre prepare food and so forth. So, you know, we, we tend to refi. Oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. And you eat this and you eat that. Like, in a way, we imitate. And we think that, you know, there is a rule and a reason for that and we do it. But we're just getting, you know, the scratch of the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and we're just like, you know, doing something that we're told we're doing, but we're not importing the whole system. I'm going to give another example. A lot of people know that ayahuasca have to do with witchcraft. So it's this idea that ayahuasca can be both healing and harming and damaging. For example, if, the, if disease is some kind of imbalance and then it can be the, the product of an attack of an enemy, of another shaman or... Uh, some kinship problem, uh, some jealousy, some problem in the family. And then you can have, like, the, the shaman can, like, throw a dart at you and can make you a spiritual attack. And then you have to get rid of that. And maybe the shaman will clean you and take that away and then throw that back or elsewhere. So healing can be also damaging. Healing can be a counterattack, and this can happen in the personal level, but it can also happen in like the territorial or tribal level. Uh, there's an author of one of our paper, of our books, which uh, perhaps is our favorite book, and Clancy Kavner here is my co-editor in eight books, and um, she normally doesn't speak a lot, but she's very knowledgeable. I recommend you talk to her uh, after too. Uh, this book, Ayahuasca Shamanism in the Amazon and Beyond, the, the preface or one article is talking about how ayahuasca could be like a negative sort of diplomacy. For example, you go and you drink ayahuasca and then you see that, you know, the other group is going to attack you, invade you. So you are smarter and faster and go there and kill everybody before. So, when Westerners go to the world of shamanism, they already heard, because this is kind of pop already, and it sort of traveled through the grapevine, that ayahuasca has to do with sorcery. So people have an idea about sorcery. They have a kind of knowledge that this exists, and this is a problem, or, you know, I want to stay out of it, or I don't know about it, or whatever. That's something that is from the exotic indigenous people that don't really fit us, and there is this kind of discomfort, 
but also the ones that are more cool and more initiated know about it. So this happens with sorcery. With the world of diets, there's a whole thing going on as well. But it's not, people don't know about that as much as they've heard about sorcery, but they didn't hear about diets so much. So they know that there exist diets, but they don't know much more about the universe behind the diets. I don't know if it's clear what I said, as they would know a little bit more about sorcery. What I'm saying is that we have particular appropriations of the use of ayahuasca. And moving forward with my million theories. Um, so there's some authors that claim, and I li really like this metaphor, and uh, there is one paper in our book that's called Ritual Misunderstanding. And what the authors are talking about is what enables this communication between these different cultural systems. Oh my God, like sorcery, diets, you know, that blood, boars and shamans and uh, plants that are beings and that are intelligent and that have intentionality and that teach you how do we fit all this with our worldview. And what these authors are saying, it's kind of fun and provocative. They're saying that this communication happens because there is a ritual misunderstanding. Like this part here is saying something and this part is understanding something different. And this part is saying something, and this part here is understanding something different. So they kind of understand each other <laughs> because each one gets what they can out of that, which I think speaks a lot of, you know, relationships. If you think of marriage, for example, like if you try to understand everything literally, maybe it doesn't work. Like you have to sort of adapt and find common ground. The example they use is the idea of spirits, no? like a traditional indigenous shamanic view would talk about spirits and talk about uh, this world, this, this animated world, this idea that plants are alive, plants have intentionality, plants have subjectivity. They teach you, they punish you, they show you. If you diet them, they'll let you see uh, so the one side you have this idea of spirit and on the other you have this idea of psyche or self or human subjectivity and so Westerners will read things in psychological terms and the shamans are talking about spirits and they'll say something like oh you're unconscious your your uh, memories or your traumas or stuff like that and then in this dialogue um in these different worldviews, there are ways that this communication happens and it works on both sides. Mm -hmm. So with different cosmologies and with the role of the shaman being the sorcerer, the one who is going to travel to the spiritual world and bring about the knowledge, it's going to have the vision of if it's in the tribal situation, where is the enemy, how we can survive that. If it's in a more Western context, where's the healing for that person, that message, the the animal, the what needs to happen there. So this, this cosmology that permeates both indigenous and non-indigenous context of the use of ayahuasca, where the shaman is being projected on as this person who has 
this magical power because he has access to the spiritual world and to healing and to the medicine. And he's there to facilitate and take care. And in that, um, we have unfortunately heard some scandals in the community of spiritual traditions where um, men misusing their power in face of women going to get treatment or healing. And I know that in the in the last conference that you organized here at CIS, the, the Women in Psychedelics, you talked about the guidelines. Do you want to mention something about that? Yeah, we created the Chakruna guidelines for awareness and prevention of sexual abuse in ayahuasca circles. So you can go to our website, chakruna.net, and there's community on top, and then this link is there. And we try to give in a, a bunch of tips on how to avoid potential misunderstanding um, situations and a little bit uh, raising the topic of cultural challenges or misunderstandings, which I just want to make it very clear that we're not telling that women can't do this or can't do that. It's not up to us to judge bodily autonomy and you know women's liberty to do whatever they want. We're also not victim blaming, saying, well, you got raped because if you were not so stupid to wear that miniskirt, we're not doing anything like that. And we're not, you know, uh, uh, trying to say that if bad things happened, it's because she didn't think about, you know, the proper, way, proper ways. But we're trying to raise the topic of cultural differences that exist and trying to create an education that women, when they go to the Amazon, uh, they, they need to pay attention to certain codes and be aware of those things. So maybe in small villages, things like uh, uh, looking a man into the eye and or touching can be understood as some sexual um, invitation. Mm -hmm. Or going to take a swim in the river naked. Yes, enjoying the dolphins and the beauty and the river and the sun and not being very aware of what's going on, you know. And then there's the whole problem of consent because a lot of women think they're engaged in consensual relationships, but there is a hierarchy, there is a power issue. And, you know, frequently the shamans, almost all of them are married and have wives and kids and a whole community. And that might be not as consensual as they are reporting uh, for their... For the for the outside woman, uh, and so we we try to give give some ideas like try to do your due diligence, uh, try to investigate where you're going to drink, try to see the history of the shaman, try to go with a friend, look to see if there's a women shaman, and just also basic things like when you do your healing, maybe you have to take your your shirt out, but you leave your bra. It doesn't exist to take your undergarments off. It doesn't exist any sexual tantric healing where you have penetration or you do oral sex. This thing doesn't exist. It's not in any tradition. That's bullshit that a guy is inventing to have sex with you. And be aware of that uh, and try to... We have collected a lot of um, 
you know, stories throughout the years. And it's very, it's very heartbreaking because I personally witnessed this girl that was in a diet. I have a, a long history of being doing this work, like two decades of helping women in this, not because I like it or because it's my thing or because I'm a feminist. It's just because there's, you know, shit happens. And then people come to me and I feel bad. And then I want to act because I feel human solidarity. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's hard and there's not a lot of places to go. So I've, I've seen this story. For example, she was saying that she was in a, in a diet and then taking a lot of plants in isolation, reported to the shaman that she had sexual traumas and a lot of issues, of course, a lot of women go to ayahuasca sessions because they want to heal sexual trauma, because they have certain vulnerabilities, mental health challenges. And then the shaman was like talking about the importance of like knowing your body and owing your body. And also the shamans, you know, they hang out with Westerners. They learn. They're fast. They're smart. Say tricky things and just, you know, took her to somewhere made things in a way that she, you know, did oral sex and he told her to ingest the sperm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that was going to heal her. And she told this to us. And we had to say, no, like, no, that's not going to heal you. And it was so, like, hard. Because as she told and kind of like, it sort of like the enchantment broke and then she felt incredibly stupid and full like what i fell for this it's like you know sometimes ah, i think i am so cool i'm an anthropologist i'm brazilian and i've been around i i was in a hotel in in in, in peru I've, I've been to peru and to the amazon several times i was robbed several times and this one occasion this guy in this hotel asked me money, landed. But he told me a convincing story. And I landed to him and I commented with the desk. And the guy told me, ha, this guy lives here. <laughs> and he asked money, landed for all women. <laughs> and he lives of this. No? And I felt incredibly stupid. Like, it's just, uh, you know, put on top of being a foreigner, being a traveler, being under the influence, being vulnerable, and the questions of abuse, of of hierarchy, of it creates a lot of challenges. Um, and then there's also this problem of consent that is highly complicated. What is consent under this hierarchical relationship? What is consent under the influence of a mind-altering substance? Uh, and also in religious relationships, because one, one branch... the. The guidelines try to talk about all contexts. So we did this work collectively, talking to facilitators, women, men. We also have to engage men in the discussion. We're all about men. And if men don't change, nothing is going to change. So it's not about women versus men. It's about working together as a community, uh, bringing awareness. And we try to give... Uh, this this basic idea and also to sparkle this to become like a community interest and a, a interest of the group. 
we've been criticized that, you know, it's not on the woman's burden to avoid rape. Like, it's not the woman that should be responsible, but it's the community that should be responsible. Yes, we agree. However, patriarchy exists, and this sort of dilemma is real. Um, yeah, I recommend people read and... I was just in Brazil and there was this big scandal. There has been a series of scandal in Brazil. I don't know if you guys are following. João de Deus is this big famous healer that's medionic, um, does give passes. And he had like 400 women accusing him. Then Prem Baba, who is an ayahuasca leader that became kind of a guru, Hinduistic, had a few... Uh, people accusing him. And now G. Marques from Reino do Sol, a Santo Daime church, had also um, a bunch of accusations. The, the woman that collected all this information is an activist called Sabrina Bittencourt. She just apparently released a note that she killed herself. But now there has been People are doubting whether it's true or not. Maybe she disappeared because she's scared of the threats. But we did see a kind of, you know, tread throughout this because one thing is the shamanic, as I said. Then there is the, the religious model. And then it's this hierarchy be between disciple and leader. So the leader, what we saw in the case of this case is that I was closely following, talking to the victims, and I attended a meeting with victims, is that a lot of what was being done is like the leader uses as a, as a coin of exchange, as a language, as a kind of means of seduction. He kinds of seduces, abuses, and then he gives some sort of religious prestige to this follower in the community. So all of a sudden you're pulled into the special task force. You have the special gifts and you're like put in charge of this special religious uh, uh, performance and you're a you're member of an elite squad that is doing special healings. And what we noticed throughout was a lot this uh, idea that, you know, once they abuse them, they seduce them, they get them, they, they sort of become higher in the hierarchy. And that is part of the whole weird mishmash of religious authority, which mixes religious, religious, religious leader and follower, therapist and client. And this is also very complicated. And so, you know, we were trying to say in a nice way, you sleep with a shaman, you don't become a shaman. <laughs> you don't have special powers. That's what they want to tell you. But it's not true. Uh, and all of this navigating a real tense thing because we we also got some angry feminists criticizing us. Um, it's not easy. It's a kind of work that is not easy. It's not a work that I'm, you know, especially thrilled. As I say, it's an organic thing. Thank you for entertaining the question. Thank you. Thank you, Bia. <laughs> You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. 
If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. 